are listening to Space Time Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Doc! I'm from the future. Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. Hi, everybody. This is Space Time Mind. I'm Pete Mandic. I'm the Space Tot. And then I'm with Richard Brown. He's the I mind. You put it together, it's Space Time. You said you were the Space Tie. I was like, no, I'm Space Tot. <laughs> You're the Space Tie. <laughs> I've got my blow up the moon for science shirt on. Oh, why would you do that? Blow up the moon? Fuck that. I mean, the moon? Come on. Oh, man. The moon thinks it's pretty big. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Have you been hearing about this, uh, speaking of moons, this this uh, comet? Or not comet, what is it? Whatever that thing. It might be a comet. Actually, actually I don't know if it's a comet uh, or whatever. Delay, Philia, the, yeah. delay. I think it's a comet. Is it okay? Good. Okay, there's a comet. So they anyway, had the uh, they had the rover out there on it that was dead, and then it like recharged itself and is now reporting back some interesting datums. So here's how I first found out about this whole thing. Um, uh, <laughs> I had no idea this project was happening, and then one day I happened to be on Twitter. It said someone said, "Oh my goodness, the the fillet lander is gonna is about an hour away from touchdown." I'm like. Wait, what? It, huh? What? <laughs> and this is one of the great things about about Twitter. Like you could yeah. you could really follow things um, more close to live than just about any other part of the internet. Right. Um, like if you hear weird noises outside your house, especially if you live in a city, like you do, you just get on Twitter and you're like, "Weird noises in Greenpoint," and there's like 18 people saying like, "Oh yeah, a helicopter just crashed into a ice cream truck." So anyways, I, I started searching on Twitter for like, you know, what, what's the deal with this mission? And next thing you know, I'm finding live feeds. And the next thing you know, they uh, have landed this thing. Yeah. And I'm so invested in it, I literally uh, am weeping. Like uh, my eyes got all teared <laughs> up because it's like, oh, yes, we finally did it. We made contact with. And like, it's a really, really cool project. Wow. Really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> a, a remote thing of a job on a, a comet. And I was it there. It's almost cool. like I helped. Yeah. So then it died, and I then it came that. back a lot. Well, it ran. It somehow it was in a shadow or something, so it couldn't recharge its batteries because it's solar powered. So it eventually ran out of solar power and went offline, stopped communicating. And then I guess what happened was they wrote it off. Basically, I'm not sure. I mean, whatever. From the things I read, it seemed like they were like, "Oh, well, I guess that's it." Then um, our toys broken. And then spontaneously, out of the blue, it came back online and started tweeting again because it was broadcasting. So it was like, hi, I'm back or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. 
And then the, the new interesting claims are that some people are saying that the data that it's sending back now suggests that there may be some kind of micro, microbial life forms on the comet. And I mean, as far as I can tell, the evidence for this is that the crust seems to be nitrogen, uh, okay. a, rich, a nitrogen-rich crust, which they're saying, uh, given that it's flying through space, it would be coming off or something at a certain rate, so the only way it could still have this crust is that there's some kind of organic thing which was producing it, or I guess because that's a kind of organic reaction or something that produces this kind of cr crust. I, I'm not sure yeah. the details of the organic chemistry here, but I think what they're saying is that this may suggest that there is a kind of microbial life on the asteroid, which is an interesting claim, I think. Um, yeah. Now, it'll be funny if it turns out that it's from the lander or something. That would but yeah, but I mean, so, you know, one does, I, I, I feel that as an outsider, obviously an outsider, I do feel as though there is a general feeling amongst the people working in this kind of astrobiology stuff that they are going to find it at some point. I mean, it, it just seems... Life. Yeah, that the attitude is a matter of when will and where will we find something like this, not a matter of if or never or something. But I could be totally wrong about that. I mean, I really don't know. Who, uh, boy, who is that scientist that um, recently had this thing about uh, thermodynamics and, and how um, life is just a pretty great yeah. solution to uh, dissipating heat? Uh -huh. I don't know. I remember you mentioned that before, and I remember vaguely seeing something about that somewhere, but I don't know too much about it. It's, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting, and and the, the gist of it uh, is, and it's and it's not just like, hey, maybe this is a great way to dissipate heat, but there's like a bunch of math that would back this up. That um, mm -hmm. if you had a system in a certain kind of thermo um, thermodynamic uh, non-equilibrium the most efficient way for uh, the uh, heat to dissipate through that system would be a, a way that basically brought it through these, what you would think of as like complex structures, these uh -huh. complex processes um, of which uh, if you try to characterize life thermodynamically, it implies that life is like, life turns out to be like the shortest path um, from the non-equilibrium state to the equilibrium state. And mm -hmm. I guess that implies that life should be pretty widespread in, in the universe because these kinds of non-equilibrium states are pretty widespread. They're, you know, where you, wherever you find a star, you've got mm -hmm. a lot of non-equilibrium. Right. So that would be, you know, and I'm of the mind that like, <clears throat> life is great and uh, I hope there's more of it. Life like, is great. It's cool. <laughs> It's really cool. I like it because it's the you know the the theory of panspermia, which is a, one of the answers to the question what how did life originate on Earth? The one of the ideas is that there may be these kinds of microbial things or organic compounds and molecules um, on asteroids or comets, and that these can sort of transmit life to various planets by crashing into them, and then the whatever's on there starts doing its thing. So. One of the, that's one suggestion about how life could have originated on Earth. I don't know if it's true, obviously, but yeah. I think it's interesting. And certainly if we find something, if this bears out, which it may not, obviously, uh, but if it does um, and there is some kind of 
strange and interesting because notice it would have to be a strange and interesting life form to live on a comet <laughs> with I, I assume um, that there is no atmosphere to yeah. speak of on this bacteria are pretty hardy yeah they're pretty hardy so it'd have to be one of those so-called extremophiles or whatever yeah um, these things that are that live in these extreme conditions which you know for a long time people said it was impossible and then they found some stuff in a I don't know a a lava, a lava vent or something. Right. I don't know. The ocean's crazy, man. So as a non sequitur, but sort of vaguely sequitur, I was watching this Shark Week show because <laughs> it's Shark Week, and they were talking about alien species of the deep or whatever. Um, yeah. There were some, and you know, a lot. Of, some of these sharks and creatures down there have only recently ever been filmed. Like they said, the giant squid, for instance, had only ever been filmed uh, as as recently as 2012. And, you know, giant squids. I don't know. That's you know, ten thousand leagues under the sea or whatever. We've right. talked about giant squids for a long time, but we've never captured an image of one um, in the wild, so to speak, until we had this crazy technology that could go down there. And now we have. They show some video of it. Some weird ass. Uh, what was one of the things? Oh, a lantern shark that like generated bioluminescence and yeah. all kinds of alien crazy stuff. So uh, yeah, yeah, life, man, it's a trip. Are you listening to me? What do you want to do with your life? I want to rock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, I thought that was interesting, but we should talk about so well, something related to the future of philosophy, I thought, right? Or the, the future of humans. Oh, but yeah, you know, I'm telling you. Sorry, go ahead. So you were talking about panspermia, and, yeah. um, you know, more interesting than the question, how did life originate on Earth, is the question of how did life originate at all? So panspermia, yeah. yeah, that might be true. Life did not, the, the life on Earth came from somewhere else. Yeah. But um, there's a, a general sort of, uh, a more general question, which is how did life originate at all? And yeah, exactly. you know, pro probably the way it originated is what people call abiogenesis. There was... Uh -huh. Not, at one point, there was no life, and then there was some life. And I guess this this dynamic, uh, this thermodynamic thing that I was referring to plugs into general projects about abiogenesis. But I wanted to mention Nick Bostrom, because he's got this argument that I think a lot of people find infuriating. And he's published it under a title like, Why I Hope We Don't Find Life on Mars. Okay. You know about this argument? I don't, but I, I like Nick Bostrom's work. Yeah, Nick Bostrom. Pretty, uh, pretty interesting person. Uh, uh -huh. Produces a lot of really interesting stuff. A lot of it has to do with like the deep future of uh, the universe and, and the human race. Um, so, anyways, the, the gist of the argument goes something like this: um, If uh, if we find life on Mars, that is bad news for us. And the reason it's bad news for us is because. Um, Oh, I do know where this is. This going. is the, his, a great filter, his great filter argument. Yeah, yeah. I the idea of a great filter from, uh, I think, uh, someone named Hansen, Robin Hansen. I'm not oh. sure about that. But anyways, the uh, basic idea of the great filter uh, is supposed to uh, exp like help explain Fermi's paradox. Like, why haven't we um, encountered other intelligent uh, species? Well, you know, uh, intergalactic species, inter, uh, exoplanetary intelligences. Yeah, and the great filter says something like, "Well, uh, there's this there's this point 
uh, in in the the evolution of a species whereby uh, it goes extinct. And you might wonder, like, well, it, in a hypothetical trajectory from like you know really basic organisms, single celled organisms, to like really complicated organisms with nervous systems that enable technological societies, where in that trajectory are organisms more most likely to go extinct? Yeah. That point is, is the great filter. So you might wonder, um, has the human race made it past the great filter yet or not? So uh, it might turn out that like the, the great filter is in our future. Uh, once, you, once the singularity That's, happens, then we go extinct. Um, but nuclear technology could be a great filter too. I mean, yeah, maybe we're like in the middle of the filter and the filter is yeah. having nuclear <laughs> weapons, exactly. having nation states uh, and nuclear armaments. That's the f filter. And as a child of the 80s, I was conditioned to yeah. believe that that yeah. was in, in imminent. <laughs> um, so the, the gist of Bostrom's argument is that the more... Uh, the, the more uh, we find that the rest of the universe is lifeless, the more evidence there is that the great filter is behind us and then uh, the, the, we're more likely to keep on keeping on. But uh -huh. the more life we find, uh, that's more evidence that the great filter is ahead of us. Yeah, see, I'm not sure about that part of it. So why if we find some microbial life on a, on a comet, is that evidence that the great filter is ahead of us? Now, maybe, maybe the argument only applies to intelligent. Maybe it's not so much just like finding some kind of life, but intelligence in general. Or well, not, I, I, don't know, I don't know the details well enough. Any life that we find is life that hasn't gone extinct. Yes. So um, that is life that itself um, it, 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 it is evidence that the great filter isn't, uh, say, um, having... Um, uh, cellular nucleus right so well, it doesn't affect it doesn't filter that out right so suppose su suppose we find uh suppose we find something like um vertebrates we get you know we find vertebrates of extraterrestrial origin uh, yeah but we're just taking i was talking about just microbes <laughs> bacteria well, it, but but okay whatever uh are, let's suppose that they are multicellular uh micro organisms then um, that's evidence that the, the great filter is after uh, microcellular organisms. Because uh, since they're alive, that means they're not extinct. So the great right. filter, their filter wasn't earlier than that by the mere fact that they're alive. So, and this is supposed to feed into some probabilistic argument. This is increasing the probabilities about where we should guess the filter is relative to us. I have to confess that when I read the argument, I'm like, okay, okay, I got it. I got all the pieces in place. Mm. But then uh, a day or two goes by, and I try to remember how the argument goes, and I'm like, uh, fuck. It's interesting, though. I mean, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess one, one thing that I was thinking, which, uh, again, I don't know the details either, but one thing I was thinking is, yeah, so – it's going to be specific to the kind of thing you're talking about, uh, single cell. So if you're talking about intelligence, 
I don't know how much intelligence we want to assign to these microbes, but probably not as much as say to us. You and right. I, let, let's be charitable to us today and say <laughs> that uh, we're better uh, than microbes. We're better than microbes. Exactly. I feel weird saying that, but yes, I'm better than a microbe. Um, so, but that it does. So what that means maybe is there may be a great filter for fleshy things like this. Um, but is that same filter going to affect us fleshy things from morphing into other things like it? So could you have, for instance, like for weird functionalists like you guys, you know, um, couldn't you have you be instantiated by a bunch of microbes uh, if they were harnessed in the right way and organized in the correct way? They would end up being you if they instantiated all the correct functionings. So what would one way to escape? A filter, if you could predict it, might be to, if you could, if this theory of consciousness or self-identity were correct, uh, was by you know predicting it and then changing yourself into a kind of thing which wouldn't be susceptible to that. Um, I guess it's something like what you know Susan Schneider has uh, argued in some of her works for the reasons why aliens would be uh, uh, artificially intelligent. Yeah. As opposed to organic, because uh, they. Now, I'm not saying that she was thinking that they would be escaping a great filter in this way, but she was thinking, I think, that they would be more durable um, and right. you know more likely to withstand the uh, uh, perils of extraterrestrial travel. Right. Uh, one thing. One thing. I just since I'm rambling about this, one thing I would say about that though is I never understood why it's it's either your organic or your um, uh, artificial intelligence, or you're a, a computational, you know, machine type thing. Um, because one thing you might think is that we could change. I mean, if we really understood bioengineering and biochemistry enough, we wouldn't have to change into machine bodies. I mean, the the, the organic body we have is a fairly incredible machine. Um, and if you take the point of view that you know I'm inclined to take, and you think of aging, you know, this is sort of um, a, a popular line you hear among some people who like this line that aging is a disease, not yeah. a natural thing, but a, a disease um, which, which is a, a defect in the way the human body runs. Well, there are certainly ways, conceivable ways of improving the functioning of the human body um, right. organically without turning yourself into a or uploading your mind into a. I mean, that's that's a different set of questions, I think. So I don't know why we wouldn't find uh, organic aliens that have. They might be bioengineered in some way to withstand space in, in interesting ways. Right. Doesn't yeah. seem to automatically get computers. I think you have a good point, and uh, maybe one one way to put your point is to say that the, this kind of argument, if we're understanding it correctly, is conflating artificial with machine. Yeah. And um, if we foc focus just on the, the claim about artificiality. Maybe it's a, it's a more plausible argument. It goes something like: if you're intelligent enough um, to modify your form to increase your survivability, then you you probably will. Yeah, you, you try that. Um, <laughs> you know, th th given enough time, the the Earth will be destroyed. Yeah. You know, just based on probability, it's going to get hit by an asteroid if we wait long enough. Um, also, well, it, the, sun the sun's going to yeah. and, and eat it. And yeah. um, unless we figure out a way to uh, change it, you know, I mean, we'll just suck the sun, make a black hole, suck it in there, and then. Uh, <laughs> but what would, it, but what would be sun? easier? 
stuck in, you know, building a shell around the sun or, <laughs> or, or relocating and you might take relocating. Yeah. yeah. Relocating might be, might be easier, but now there's all sorts of difficulties. We are very uh, massive. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I, I weigh way over 200 pounds. And so that's, that's very from an energetic perspective, it's really hard to get me to escape uh, the grab uh, to uh, achieve escape velocity. Yeah, relative to this inertial frame, you weigh that, but you know we can change that easily. Uh, we, <laughs> it's hard to move a whole bunch of mass around. Also, I need a lot of stuff. I need I need atmosphere. I need or yeah. I need organic things, at least plants to eat, and and they themselves they need a whole bunch, right? So. There's an enormous amount of mass that you would have to uh, transport to transport my consciousness without massively modifying my substrate. Right. So you might say, like, well, what could we, like, okay, what does Pete really need? Maybe, um, maybe he just needs the three-pound brain, and we could put that into a smaller package. We could put the brain into a little spider robot that only weighs, um, uh, forget robot, we put it into a, an something organic something something biological um yeah a spider arachnoid but it might also turn out that like the brain like given the informational functions that the, the that the brain needs to perform uh th that the brain is actually a pretty inefficient way of doing that there might be a more efficient way right it's still organic in some sense it's, it's biological in some sense but it has a lot less redundancy and, and maybe the same amount of intelligence and the same consciousness capacities could actually be fit into something that doesn't weigh three pounds. We can exactly. Do like uh, a half a pound. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so I think that one of the things that clearly is, so going back to the Bostrom stuff, one of the things I think that's clearly an issue that he has in mind is preserving us as a species. Um, so a lot of the work that he's interested in is what happens to humans, how do humans fit into this. So in his book, Superintelligence, uh, you know, he spends a lot of time thinking about how we can, you know, the value problem, how we get friendly AI or how what we do to ensure that they value the things that we value um, as human beings. And one wonders, therefore, whether uh, when he's thinking about great filters and so forth, he's thinking about species continuation. And it's not clear that if we do this, we continue as a species. Um, right. I mean, it's not clear that we don't either. <laughs> when, you, when you really think about what species are, it's difficult, and, so, and everyone knows that, I think. But there's still a sense in which, you know, I mean, people really love the idea that there's something human about humans. <laughs> right. Uh, I, think it, I think when it boils down to it, what they think is human about humans is something emotional or something irrational or something like that. But uh, who knows? So I... Um, not sure that that really is. So would, be, would would so one one way to put some of what I'm rambling about here is, would what we're talking about would what we're talking about count as escaping a, the great filter or as it taking effect? <laughs> because if you do morph yourself into this other form or something like that, then has that therefore you know the filter has filtered out you that type of life form. Or has it? I mean, I think what we were assuming or what you were yeah. talking about is that it hasn't. But it's not clear to me that someone on the other side wouldn't say, no, that's exactly what we mean by the great filter. You just got filtered and that kind of life doesn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
to segue somewhat into uh, a slightly different point, um, one thing that you might say is that we, uh, who happen to be human, could value a future state which is post-human, and we right. might, in some sense of the word, identify. You know, you know, like in the the psychological sense of identify. Like, you know, I I identify with New Jersey and New Jerseyans. New New Jersey, and wow. even though I wasn't born here, I've converted to New Jerseyism, and I am a state employee. So I identify with, with uh, I identify with New Jerseyism. Uh, and New Jerseyites. I know. I think it was for that reason that you got booted out of Manhattan. They're like, like this get guy. Get the fuck out of get here. Get out of here. Um, <laughs> Beat it, you Jerseyan. <laughs> so, you know, I think I, uh, you know, I think a lot about these debates about mind uploading and, like, would, would a human person survive the mind uploading procedure? And one way of reacting to that that I'm attracted to is to say, who fucking cares? There yeah. is... There is a sort of entity that would survive, yeah. uh, and maybe the best way of describing that entity is to say that it's abstract or say that it's a type versus a token, yeah. but it's arguable that post-humans post uh, have identity criteria that are, are such that they would survive that. And I, as a human, I could identify with those future post-humans and say, you know what, yeah, I'm going to... I'm gonna, Act in ways that will help bring about mind uploading technology, and when the technology exists, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into the box and get. I mean, zapped. you know the but so the I mean I'm not saying you're that's that's bad or anything, but one thing that I think about it, um, and this is what I thought when I read your paper on this or your nascent paper, uh, metaphysical you know, daring. That yeah, whatever that the the, up, the strategy to save yourself by uploading. Um, so I thought, gee, you know, it would that's that would be nice if it works. But suppose you had a parody of that same strategy, but you think about cryogenics instead. So you think about the Walt Disney case or something, and Walt Disney says, uh, "Oh, okay. So let's see. Um, I want to live forever, so I want to be daring. So I'm going to have myself frozen and thaw me out uh, a thousand years from now or whatever." And then, of course, the great tragedy, I'm kind of snickering, but the great tragedy of that is that in real life, I think, people who opted for that, to technology, the companies went bankrupt, they thought out, there were people, I mean, so that it resulted in ter ter terrible um, uh, tragedy in the sense of not working at all. So you can imagine a case like that in this other case. So forget about whether you really survive or not. Suppose you're in the server now. And then the server crashes. Right. Power on Earth goes out for whatever reason because we create a black hole in the lab, or we, you know, fill in the story as you want. The servers crash. There you go. But here I am at my organic sloppiness in a cave somewhere, uh, and I survive. So you know, metaphysical. So the daring part is real daring. Um, it right. may work, but it's not guaranteed or even probable. If you, I think that you're that it, the survival chances go up. And unless you really have some priors, uh, prior reason to believe in success and long-term yeah. success, you know, you don't want what the equivalent of online, what they call link decay or link, what it, you know, it's like the stuff just goes bit away because it's not there. Anymore. Bit rot. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, if you want to win big, you got to risk big, baby. And yeah, but evolution has taught us to be conservative, right? I mean, the dinosaurs were conservative. 
Boom. It's not part of my argument that it's a guarantee. And I, I mean, I don't think you yeah. were saying that. that no, it's no, I wasn't. Uh, I mean, it, it, part of being daring is that there's – What I was saying is that it makes it more probable though. I was, I was kind of saying that I do think that it's not, it's not obviously the case that this strategy increases the likelihood that you will survive. Uh, right. So that, if it did, doesn't guarantee it, but it also doesn't increase guarantee an increase in the likelihood. If right, if it did, like if if we could assess it all right now and come to the conclusion that you're better off yeah. doing this thing, like right now, it's more probable that you'll get these benefits. Then right. choosing that wouldn't be a daring thing to do. That would be actually the mo like like right. Of course, it's. Yeah. Well, it may still be daring, but it depends on what you mean by daring. But yeah, right, right. It may, yeah. So um, there's a there, there is a very big payoff in the stuff about like right if if this works, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the ability to like uh, leave a planet really fast. You're going to get the ability to make enormous amount of backup copies and have them distributed across uh, a, a wide uh, chunk of the universe. So if something really bad happens in one chunk, you still Keep on keeping on, right? So that's the, <laughs> yeah, but that's a characterization of the payoff. Um, yeah. But what is the likelihood that it's gonna pay out? That is a hard question. And well, even if it succeeds, though. So I was saying, I was saying, I, I think what you're saying is is true. But I was think I was saying something slightly different, which is that even if what you say succeeds. There still are all these contingencies, which you know, like the server crashing or whatever, um, or you know, think of idiocracy. Have you ever seen this? One of my favorite movies of all time, Idiocracy. idiocracy. People just get so dumb they can't operate the fancy computers. So it doesn't matter. It's gonna fail because people are stupid, or if it's gonna fail because uh, electricity ceases to work for whatever reason, or I mean, I want to say some, one small thing. Yeah, Idiocracy is probably one of the most important movies ever made. Yeah, it's... <laughs> People should be when I first saw it, I didn't like it at all, and then gradually it sunk in of how momentous and monumental. Yeah, the movie People should be required to like in social studies class. We're just going to have Idiocracy <laughs> exactly. unit. Oh my god! Uh, okay, so we got only fifteen minutes. I declare a break. For the last time, I'm pretty sure what's killing the crops is this Brondo stuff. The Brando's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. So wait a minute. What you're saying is that you want us to put water on the crops? Yes. Water. Like out the toilet? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be out of the toilet, but, but yeah, that's the idea. But Brando's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. Okay, look. The plants aren't growing. So I'm pretty sure that the Brando's not working. Now, I'm no botanist, but I do know that if you put water on plants, they grow. Well, I've never seen no plants grow out of no toilet. Hey, that's good. You sure you ain't the smartest guy in the world? Yeah. So <laughs> okay, look, you, you want to solve this problem. I want to get my pardon, so why don't we just try it, okay? And not worry about what plants crave. Brando's got what plants crave. Yeah, it's got electrolytes. What are electrolytes? Do you even know? It's what they use to make Brondo. Yeah, but why did they use them to make Brondo? Because Brondo's got electrolytes. Break but, is over. Now let's talk about the future of philosophy. Welcome back from the break, everybody. Um, <laughs> we've only got 15 minutes. All right. Uh, cool. 
future philosophy, man. Can I tell you about my three scenarios? Yeah. These are three scenarios for the future of the human race that it's interesting to think about the future of philosophy in co uh, connection with. Okay. And we could maybe just pick one or pick none of them. Uh -huh. One scenario is things continue for the next several hundred years as pretty much the same as they are now. That even though we've had a lot of rapid changes over the past three, four hundred years, there also have been big chunks of human history that things just pretty much stay the same for hundreds, even thousands of years. So yeah. one scenario for the future of the human race for like the next thousand years is it's not very different from the 21st century. Another scenario is uh, the one I really like to think about, some kind of like super duper a futuristic, optimistic sort of thing where yeah. we continue to increase, uh, even if we uh, in increase it, uh, the number of changes linearly, uh, you, you think about the changes from the 17 uh, to the 1800s to the 1900s to the 20th, uh, the 20th century, like in 200 years, it's going to be crazy. But there's yeah. also a good reason to think maybe um, that increase is exponential. Uh, so that the second scenario is a kind of singularity scenario or super sci-fi scenario. Yeah. And then the third scenario that's kind of interesting. Future about, primitive. I was going to say dark ages. Yeah, future primitive. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. Did you see uh, Mad Max? Is that why you're so... Well, the original Mad Max I've always seen, but I haven't seen the, the recent the one that everyone's one gushing about. Everyone says it's good for some reason, I, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be surprised. I mean... I like the original, and really, when I think about it, it was part two that I really like. That when I was young, that, that Road Warrior, Beyond the Thunderdome, yeah, Thunder actually. Uh, but the, the first one scared me, like the scene where he has to chop off his, the guy has to saw off his own arm before the thing blows up. That traumatized me as a kid. That was pretty yeah. gruesome. That was in the but first anyway, one. Um, so yeah, some kind of really messed up. We go back, everything gets fucked beyond belief. Fubar. Yeah. And we start all over in the dark, 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 like pre-quantum error. I mean, not just joking, but, you know, literally back to, like, it's uh, spooks and ghosts. So what scenario should we talk about in the next? Well, we before we talk, I would, first of all, say that I would say there's one conception of philosophy which I think would stay the same in all three of those scenarios. Um, and so a lot of this depends on what we mean by philosophy. So I, I tend to think that one of its meanings, it's a per, it's a personal activity, and that sort of if if the more like you know Socratic interpretation of uh, what it means to be a philosopher is to be someone who critically examines one's own beliefs, doesn't live a sleepwalking life, blah blah blah, and yeah. uh, tries to un really think um, in a self-conscious way about what they ought to think <laughs> and how they ought to think and so forth and so on. Um, and in that sense of uh, uh, philosophy, I think that it could it could continue. And I mean, I think that's a kind of um, that thought would naturally reoccur, even in the future primitive kind of case. I think that there would probably be a future primitive Socrates um, or a Mad Max Socrates or whatever, who maybe not a, a right off the bat. It may take some time, but I think that's kind of a natural thing that you could kind of uh, in the old days. F. M. Cornford, you compared it to sort of. A teenager becoming self-aware. There's a natural yeah. point in development where you kind of just start thinking about that stuff. And I think something is like that sort of for for humans in general. There's a stage at which it will become self-reflective. 
and that's the birth of this kind of thing. So I, I think I, that's my personal own view about that. What, what do you think about that? Um, I'm inclined to agree. I like your characterization of philosophy uh, as a the thing that allows like individualized, non-institutional, non-academic activity. Yeah. What I tell my students um, early in the semester as like a definition of philosophy is number one, you can't define it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's the attempt to gain uh, knowledge based as much as possible on just thinking about topics that are fundamental to everything else, uh, all other kinds of knowledge and all other kinds of ways of life. And that's totally fits with what you were saying philosophy yeah. is. And I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you uh, about like, even in some kind of dark ages thing, um, when people, maybe people are running around trying to find the last drips of gasoline, there's still going to be at least some people who stop and say like, you know, why? Why are we doing this? Why are we here? Yeah. What is the best yeah. way to be? Should we really be fighting? Wouldn't it be better uh, to maybe talk things out? Um, so, but here, here's, a, here's a counterpoint to that. Yeah. Uh, arguably, there have been, there have been stages in um, human civilization. Um, maybe even there's parts of the world where this is happening now, where the people that are kind of close to that, that have that kind of wiring, they don't go in that direction. They go in a, a slightly different direction. Like um, they are maybe a shaman. Uh, yeah. They right, right. There's a kind of withdrawal <laughs> from regular life. Uh, I would say like the Pythagoreans. <laughs> yeah, and maybe, uh, but maybe there's there's a kind of uh, way of characterizing um, uh, generally what what philosophical people or philosophical activity is, such that philosophy is not the only way to do it. Maybe right. being a mystic or being a shaman uh, or 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 being an artist is. Uh, not philosophy, but it's kind of in that same um, part of the phase space of ways of, of being. Well, so, you know what? So what? What I just to riff off what you said. What I've because I thought a lot about this when I was doing my introduction to philosophy courses, and it's like you have to, you know, and I have this, you know, the video that I have on YouTube uh, has almost a hundred thousand views at this point. My introductory video, "What Is Philosophy," which is interesting. Um, I never expected that. It's a pretty cheesy video, I thought. But it is the kind of lecture I always give in my first class in an introductory philosophy course. Um, and one of the things that I, I, that I was thinking about is it would be nice if there were a method <laughs> that could distinguish philosophy from other things. Because, you know, when you, talk, when you teach a psychology class, that's what you start with. You start with the scientific method, and you try to distinguish that from pseudoscience. And, I mean, it's hard, but you can do it, and, and so forth and so on. So... Um, and the scientific method has a long history, and people grasp onto it and go, aha, so, and then you can ask questions. Is this an, doing the scientific method? Is that, and what about string theory? What about, okay, so that's all interesting. Uh, so I thought, well, what is there that's like a scientific method that you find in philosophy? And some people would say nothing, that there is nothing like that. But my own personal view is that there is something like that, and that it basically is the following thing, that... Uh, the philosophical method, in the way I view it, is a commitment to the following kind of claim. And the claim is simply that if you have an argument for the conclusion that P, then that counts as evidence for P. And then that leaves open what counts as an argument. Now, I'm not talking, it does not necessarily formal or deductive or 
I mean, there's, you could fill that in in various ways, but what I think that we're committed to and what makes, what makes philosophy distinctive as an, as an enterprise is that we consider arguments, and we think that arguments mo should motivate us uh, to accept, well, if these reasons, then this conclusion, something as general as that, and so you can do, you can use that method in many different areas, and I think that in some sense, scientists obviously employ that, and so that, I don't think that counts as a point against me, but I do think that at, at the core, what we count as philosophy is thinking about arguments, and really, because a lot of people you will meet that you say, well, there's an argument for this conclusion, and they just, who gives a shit? Yeah, so Barkley has this argument. Yeah. I don't care, but doing philosophy is caring about the argument and trying to see how it works and also where it can where it can go wrong and how you could escape from it because uh, uh, arguments count as evidence. I think to me that seems to be something fundamental about philosophy that's different um, from other areas. Unless you, I mean, of course they give arguments, but then I would say in that, insofar as they're doing that, they're engaging, they're using the method which comes from the philosophical approach to, to, to problem solving. I think that that's nice. Um... We probably would have to add some stuff, to, you know, to characterize arguments such that sophistry doesn't count or... Um, well, I would actually say that the sophists are trying to give arguments. I mean, to me, it seems that's exactly why what, 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 if you look at the, the debate between Socrates and Gorgias, for instance, in, in that dialogue, uh, Gorgias is a you know, classic sophist, but he's got an argument. It seems to me he's got an argument. He's, got a, he's trying to convince Socrates that something is the case. He's, you, know, you might say, no, that's rhetoric as opposed to argument. I don't know. I yeah, that's, that's what I was worried about was rhetoric. So think about in, uh, in court, there's like lawyers who are trying to sway a jury and they're trying to sway judges. There's a sense in which the opposing lawyers don't give a shit about the truth. Yeah, they're, they're not seeking knowledge. They're trying to win. <laughs> right. They're going to say whatever they can say within the bounds of, I mean, they have le commitments to the law and they probably also have commitments to ethics. But within those strictures, they're going to say whatever it takes to win. And that seems to me to be a sense of the word argument, but not yeah. this, probably the sense that you and I want in thinking about what philosophy is. Like there's something, I mean, so well, I think I you're, you're right. That. I would. I, um, that's that's the kind of art, philosophical argument, just like fighting to win. Um, well, see, so I think that yeah. If one of the things that people say when they when when I talk about this, because I wrote a bunch of stuff on early days on my blog about this, and I got a lot of interesting discussion generated from this kind of idea. And one of the things that I got pushback on, and I think it's there, it was good to have pushback on, because I don't I don't think there's one way to define. But I agree with what you were saying at the beginning. I'm not trying to say this is the definition of philosophy. I think it's a kind of way of uniting a bunch of stuff we call philosophy, which seems to me to be something important about the way we approach problems that other disciplines don't. Uh, or at least when they do, it seems like they're doing it from a philosophical perspective. But anyway, so why isn't, um, why isn't what is called sophistry philosophy? And the answer that's usually given is what you just said. Oh, well, philosophers are interested in the truth. Um, so they, they're, and that's certainly the way Socrates and Plato present it, you know, that's what we're after here, and the sophists don't care about the truth, all they care about is winning and power, um, and that's true, but that's, and because they had a position, their position was that, you know, something like nihilism or no, nothing except power or yeah. something like that, and um, 
And when you look at what they, when you ask them why, so in the very famous dialogue uh, of the book one of the Republic, where Socrates is talking to um, Thrasymachus, Thrasymachus has an argument for his position. His position is that the people in charge make up the rules and they define as right what they think is right. And then so, right. uh, you know, that seems to me like an actual argument. Is that right? I agree. It, and the conclusion of it is that the thing that you said, that you should only care about convincing right. people. So I agree that they they often would engage in, in the kind of thing which isn't aimed at truth, but it's because they accept a certain argument. I agree um, with you. But if so so in that sense, it. they would be doing or arguing from a philosophical position. Yep. Uh, and still doing philosophy in some, I mean, maybe not in that moment when they're just yeah. bullying you no, or something. The, the sophists are doing philosophy and they have arguments in what I think of as the truth conducive sense. Uh, yeah. They have arguments, the conclusion of which is just fight to win. Which, right. right. Um, let me, I want to squeeze in another thing. This is very closely related. I read a, a Bernard Williams essay recently and he oh, had this cool. interesting criticism of Rorty, who I usually like. Um, but it really, Rorty? I usually like Rorty. Okay. Um, and, it, and, and at one point in the essay, he says like, look, if, if Rorty was right about what the future of philosophy is going to be, it, it would. Wait, wait, wait. So Rorty says future philosophy is to become a humanities discipline like English or something. Yeah. And further that there's no quest for truth. Yeah. That we just continue a conversation and we, and there's really no such thing as getting it right. You, and, right. and Bernard Williams says this thing uh, like, look, no one actually would, would feel motivated to have those conversations. The conversations would just be people saying in response to each other, oh, that makes me think of another thing. <laughs> oh, that makes me think of another thing. Right. But in order to like really get and feel engaged, you have to have a conception of the conversation as somehow directed toward the truth. That's when you really feel like it's a conversation worth having. So right. That was, I mean, I, I'm sure Bernard Williams put it way better than I did, but I thought, I found that very convincing. That really made me say like, oh yeah, right. There's, you know, maybe it's a transcendental illusion. <laughs> we have to pretend like there's truth or maybe right. this is evidence that there really is such a thing as truth, but it really connected with me that like, yeah, having a philosophical conversation can't just be chit chat. It, it can't just be bullshit. It, there has to be some kind of commitment to trying to get it right. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, think, that I, um, I think that's right. And so, but the method that we have is, as I construed it, the method of using argument as evidence um, uh, it gets at that. I mean, yeah. that, that's sort of what I think is good about it. So you could have cases where someone's using pure rhetoric. I mean, I really do think that if someone says, you know, only a communist would believe that, <laughs> and you go, "Oh no, I guess I don't believe it." That doesn't sound like you're really using the philosophical method in this right. sense. That doesn't sound like you're making an argument, um, where, unless you you have an argument for why only a communist would believe that or something. So, so I agree. I want to distinguish the rhetoric from 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 arguments per se, but I right. I do, uh, um, the I do think it's an interesting question where they in, intersect and this is I mean we got about five more minutes or whatever but okay you know this comes up a lot so I guess we could just mention it but because one of the things that I think uh, is that a lot of arguments are question begging so we were talking about this last time and some people you know one time someone accused me of, of uh, if that 
Well, if that were true, then there could be never be any philosophical progress. <laughs> and I, was like, well, I don't know if that's exactly right, but uh, a lot of people say that. Um, and the reason that I think that these questions are begging the question is because of sort of what you were just saying is that I think that philosophy is done usually in a conversation and that you beg the question against someone. So I wouldn't say that the argument is begging the question. I say the, the person, <laughs> the person who's making the argument is begging the question against me because I don't accept one of the premises in the argument that you're giving. So what, what I call begging the question is that. It's saying, here's reasons to believe that P, and then you give some reasons, and I say, but no, 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 I don't accept that as one of the reasons, uh, so right. therefore you're begging the question against me because there's a question about whether to accept that premise. Um, right. But, so that's what I think. Uh, so then, when, oh, sorry. When, when like zombie arguments are given, it depends on who they're given to. So if they're given to one person and the person says, I don't accept conceivability and tells possibility, then that premise begs the question against that person. Uh, if they don't accept the first premise that zombies are conceivable, then that, pre then that premise is begging a different question. And so, uh, so the argument being question begging depends on whether or not there is agreement <laughs> about the premises. And uh, convincing arguments are ones that start from premises that uh, people accept and then right. force them to accept conclusions that they find unpalatable. That's, but you have to have yeah. the common ground there. So now to tie this into what we're saying, what happens in the future uh, is one question you might ask about the future of philosophy is, okay, are we destined forever to be in this state of there always being questions being begged because we can't ever definitively, there will always be someone who says, I accept this and I don't accept that. And to me, it seems like, no, in the, in the limit, there could be a time when all questions are answered, and I think that is, makes sense as a conceptual possibility that every question could be known, the answer could be known. Uh, I don't see what's, in, I mean, well, I don't know, so it could, could be unknowable truths, maybe that does make sense, but for a large part I find it possible that there could be a state of affairs where every question about that state of affairs could be answered. Okay, so maybe our world is one of those kinds of things, maybe it isn't. But that makes sense to me. So in that kind of case, there wouldn't be any question-begging arguments uh, or ones that were worth taking seriously because premises would be accepted given that you know that P and that Q and that P and Q entails R or whatever. Um, there would be no reason to dispute. So it really depends for me on whether or not there are these kinds of final undisputable truths um, whether or not the future of philosophy is going to ultimately result in something like knowledge or uh, non-question-begging arguments, or in other words, us all coming to actually know something. Um, so I, I think there's hope for that. I do think there's hope for that. Um, but I don't think we're anywhere near that now. I mean, I think that we need, you know, the science of the year 20,075 or something. <laughs> can, I, uh, can I sneak some things in there? Yeah, please, go ahead. This might uh, be inelegant and need a, another episode to flesh out, but two things. One of them, Duhem-Quine thesis. Yeah. Second one, voluntarism. Yeah. So the Duhem-Quine thesis uh, says something like, you can't really ever disprove anything. You can... You can um, it's usually presented in the context of the philosophy of science. There's no such thing as a piece of evidence that, that utterly disproves a theory because the theory can always be modified or uh, conjoined with auxiliary hypotheses that would make the so-called falsifying evidence actually not falsifying after all. 
So you can always make adjustments elsewhere in your belief system to save some arbitrarily selected target belief. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of what's in our system, and this connects to my I mean, I, I deny um, that, I guess. All right, well, we don't have enough time for you to deny that. I just did. Let me say, let me say the second <laughs> thing. I think part of what's in this network that can be adjusted is not just beliefs, but um, well, wait. Are the adjustments always entail? Are, are you saying that they? Because yeah, they can maybe be adjusted. But are you saying that the person can be rational and so adjusting? Yeah, and okay, maybe. So this yeah, I definitely to, deny that. Then this relates to the second point, uh, which is the volunteerism. I think part of the things that are in this network have to do with uh, values or decisions that are, in a sense, totally up to you. So depending on what you want. Um, you can make this adjustment versus that adjustment. And mm -hmm. I don't think that there's going to be uh, an enormous amount uh, of conformity across uh, disputants. That, that there's always going to be some little differences in, in our values. And so I might make the adjustment this way, and you might make the adjustment that way. And there's no guarantee that we're all, that we're going to converge on the same Network yeah, no, I, I recognize that as a possibility, but I don't know. So, so the other thing is a possibility too. I mean, I wasn't saying that I think definitely that is true, but I think that it could be true. Um, possibly, I, you know, Fair as, enough. as far as what we know, I think what you're saying, uh, you know, I'm I'm open to these kinds of things. Uh, so, you know, my I'm 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 fine if that's the case. So, I wasn't trying to say that this is the case, but I was saying that if that were the case, then according to me. There would be no question begging arguments. But if what you're saying is the case, then yes, every it'll always be the case that you could beg the question against someone because they could rationally accept a translation or alternate um, account, which you don't, and therefore there would be no way to really argue with that person because they would just say, no, no, according to me, this is that way, and it works this way, and you say, no, but it's this way, and then that would be, oh, you're begging the question against me. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, if that were the case, that would be the case for pessimism, <laughs> whereas I was given a case for optimism. And then it would be, it'd be interesting to see if there's an argument which would point us in one or the other direction. Just to, not, not to give an argument but make an uh, autobiographical statement, I, I don't know how to work this out with compatibilism, but I do tend towards a kind of Sartrean radical liberty about this stuff. And I think uh -huh. that rational people are free to, like, value all sorts of things. And so... Um, there, there might be some point in in a, art, a discussion between the two of us where it just comes down to like, yeah, this is this is how I feel, man, and uh, you can't make me feel a different way. Yeah, but so again, we're running out of time, but you you, you can't. Uh, I don't see why you get to con conflate two different things here, which is one, um, is there a th way things are? So that's one question. Is there a way things are? Um, and then so if the answer is yes, the question becomes is there a canonical way of expressing the way things are which would capture it in a minimal sense uh, without um, whatever that means. We could spend, you know, people have written books on what that means, but whatever. So right. that's the next question. So uh, it sounds – and then the, the third question is given that – are there variants of expressing that which are notational variants in the sense of expressing sort of the same thing in some sense or another? Um, so I was saying the first thing that uh, it's possible there is a way things are um, and that there is a correct way to express the way those things are. 
So to connect this to lots of earlier discussions, maybe there is a way things are such that there are no in cars, but just cars. And so a correct way of expressing that would be talking about cars, not in cars and out cars. One correct. Or maybe it's way. vice versa. A uniquely correct way. Yeah, uniquely correct way. Um, according to some criteria like minimal, you know, blah, 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 minimal expressibility. I don't know, something like that. Um, maybe defining some kind of, you know, this is why people like David Chalmers introduced terms like super rigid. Okay, so we could find constructive theory using super rigid terms. That's sexy. Well, <laughs> no, super rigid terms are terms that are epistemically rigid as opposed to metaphysically rigid, basically. Um, and, you know, that's a whole question of whether there are such terms. So that's, again, going to open up this whole debate. But if there were a way of doing this, then, um, then I think you could... You can you would have your question your issue still come out the way you like that there could be many ways of expressing it but it would still be the case that uh, you might be begging the question in a way that was against a theory that was you know in some sense more correct about expressing the way things are even though they might be equivalent so you know one of the kind of analogies I grope towards is the way we talk sometimes is that you can say things that are true, but don't wouldn't wouldn't be uh, you know would violate an, uh, a norm of conversation or something like that by not being as specific as uh, you should be. So you know, if you say um, if you only had you know this classic example from philosophy is so if I say all the people from my class came to my party and you say wow that's fantastic but really it's that there are only two people in my class. <laughs> Then that's not. It's true that all the people came, but in some sense, it doesn't. It doesn't express, in the best, most fallacious way, the thing that you're after. Um, or you know, if you, if you ate twelve cookies, <laughs> if you ate twelve cookies, and then you said, well, I ate at least seven cookies. Yeah, that's true, but that doesn't really express. It captures in a, in a truth functional way, sort of the same sort of thing or something like that, but not in the in a way that's the best for a certain purposes the best um, so the thought roughly is well maybe there's something about reality that makes it the case that there is a way of expressing it that's better in some sense I know that's already begging millions of questions but you know, in some sense that's better than other ways that are equivalent even truth functionally equivalent um, now I've never actually you know I wrote a paper on this once and then I never did anything with it and so this these are yeah, I mean it's might not even be coherent, be coherent it's just the way I think about this type of stuff. It would be fun if we, in the future, had a, a, a universe and a whole bunch of uh, philosophers in that universe, simulated, it's all simulated, and then we just run it over and over and over again and see if they like converge to a unique way of representing that universe. Yeah, you're in one of those right now. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> hey. <laughs> All right, no, seriously, I got to go. I, I probably have a student waiting, so I should take off. That was um, a good one, man. Yeah, good discussion. So uh, I'm hearing knock. Just a second, so I, I have to go. All right, man. <laughs> See you in space time. Later. All right, bye-bye.